The truths discovered in documentary films often reveal far more than meet the eye. In his Oscar-winning movie, The Cove, photojournalist Luis Sahoyas takes us on an adventure that perhaps shows us more than we want to see. I lead an elite team of activists to penetrate a secret cove in Japan to reveal a dark secret. The Cove is part action thriller, part nature film, and it's the exciting story behind a covert operation to document one of the most horrific atrocities of the 21st century, the systematic slaughter of dolphins. That's a dolphin's worst nightmare, right there. Hundreds of thousands of dolphins have died there. You'll see the signs keep out danger. There are fishermen walking around these hills with knives. This is a national park. The fishermen told me, they said, if the world finds out what goes on here, we'll be shut down. Imagine that, they actually told us that. They kill more dolphins than any other place on the planet right there at this cove, which incidentally is in a Japanese national park, a marine sanctuary. You know, that's the irony of this whole thing. But it's also the center of the captive dolphin trade. Most of the captive dolphins in the world come from this little cove. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved dolphins. I mean, who doesn't? These smiling marine animals are the very image of fun and freedom. Growing up in Southern California, I used to love to see the dolphin and killer whale shows at ocean theme parks like Marineland and SeaWorld. But I never really gave any thought to where these animals come from. The captive dolphin industry was started more than 50 years ago by a man named Rick O'Berry. Rick O'Berry is the guy who captured and trained the five female dolphins that collectively played the part of Flipper for the popular 1960s television series Flipper. And, you know, also the movie as well. And he, you know, he's, he spent about 10 years building that industry up, and he spent about the last 40 trying to tear it down. The turning point for him was when Kathy, the primary dolphin that played the part of Flipper, committed suicide in his arms, that uh, he realized that they were more sentient, intelligent and than, than anybody realized, including himself, and he really turned himself around after that, and he's become probably the world's best-known dolphin advocate. One of the greatest ironies in nature is the dolphin's smile. In captivity, that characteristic grin masks a deep sorrow of intelligent creatures that are rounded up and put on display for our amusement. And in the cove, those less suited for the marine mammal sideshow are killed and butchered to be eaten. But here's the greatest irony. The high levels of mercury in the world's oceans brought on by industrial pollution have made dolphin meat toxic. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to the Joy Trip Project. Rick O'Berry said that 
that flipper was the best and the worst thing that ever happened to dolphins. You know, in one hand, it uh, it created the awareness that they're intelligent and sentient. On the other hand, it created all this desire for all these captures. And you know, in there, I, th I thought that there was a you know, potential for a great story. And you know, eventually, when we started making the film, the film was just going to be on the cove and Rick and Rick's backstory. And then when we came back with some of the, the, the you know, the, the early footage of the cove, the, the editor said, this has got to be in the movie, you know, the thermal imaging of you guys trying to break into the cove. And, you know, I knew, I thought those like, could be a making of DVD. That's what we were doing it for. That's what we were filming it for in the first place. Because I didn't want to be like, a, you know, Morgan Spurlock, whose movies I love, and Michael Moore, whose movies I also adore. But, I, you know, I felt uncomfortable being in front of the camera because I've been a journalist. And I didn't want to be that guy, like you know. That that was sort of the, the taboo thing was, you know, a journalist should never be part of this part of the story. It's been going on, but it's very difficult to get in there. Uh, you know, since Hardy got in there, they put up you know barricades, steel gates, razor ribbon. Uh, you know, they put installed guards, guard dogs, sensors, electronic sensors, and it's you know it's like a fortress. And you know they've been able to pull this off for quite a while because it's very difficult to penetrate the secret cove. And you know, then the, the movie became penetrating the secret cove. And you know, it's, you know, I don't know, how, you know, how many of your readers have actually seen the cove. Probably, you know, hopefully the ones that haven't. It's not, you know, we do show the slaughter, but it's mostly the images are mostly surreal. Um, when people say, "Oh, it's really horrible. I can't watch it." Well, most of what happens when you look at the footage, it happens in your imagination. You know, I, I never wanted to make a horror film. I, I hate horror films. I mean, I really, really, truly hate horror films. Uh, just to be shocked for shock value, uh, but I was curious what makes a good horror film, so I went back and studied, you know, Hitchcock. You know, you look at Rebecca; it's all music and lighting. Uh, you know, the the, the 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 scene that everybody associates as being, the, you know, the most wicked and and you know, in horror film genres, the shower scene in Psycho, and you never see, you know, the killer and the you know the victim in the same the same frame. It's all done with fast cutting and you know music and in a lot of that a lot of that same way we use that same technique with the cove and the, the, the actual footage in the cove and you know the most horrifying scenes in the cove to me are, are just the the most chilling I should say is the we'd put a, a, a camera inside of a fake rock that was designed by the folks from industrial light magic which is now called Kerner optical uh, they're the 3d arm of Lucasfilm and at this this one rock capture these we didn't even know there was a campfire back there. And when we turned on the, ca the, the, the camera after we went to retrieve them the next day, we couldn't believe that. It was perfectly placed. I mean, it was right in the middle of this campfire scene. It was like, it was like the, the rock became one of the subjects, sort of just listening in on these guys talking, what they say. And these are fishermen. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, dolph the they're, they're dolphin hunters, yeah. Okay. And, it, and it's basically old whalers that are now dolphin hunters talking to the younger dolphin hunters and bragging about how they used to, you know, once, you know, be able to see blue whales horizon, horizon, just like the dolphins. And, you know, it was like a, a clump of bamboo. That's what they called it they said, when they looked out and saw all the, the blue whales out there. And they, they, they're bragging about that. And what you, what's, what's astonishing is that there used to be, you know, somewhere probably, the estimates are about 250,000 to 350,000 blue whales in the Antarctic. These guys got it down to 400. They, they stopped killing them because they were commercially extinct. They didn't kill them because they, you know, they basically st stopped killing them because they couldn't find it anymore. And they're bragging about it. That, to me, is absolutely just chilling. You know, actually, even before we even had the movie trans translated, we had to find somebody that spoke their dialect. I knew we had a, you know, I didn't care what these guys were saying. I knew that at that point we had a movie. 
because that you know it was like you know that's the scene in Pulp Fiction where you have uh, you know John Travolta and Samuel Jackson to, before they off the, the yuppies and there's you learn so much about their, their characters this was like that sure. you know and then when you see these guys leave the campfire scene to go do this the slaughter you think okay we know who they are now you know whatever they're saying and they were talking about killing dolphins and whales they're talking about like guys do they're talking about television that night there's this one young guy that comes out of the, the shadows and he has this like imaginary clicker in his hand like a television clicker he says I was watching TV last night and I couldn't hear it and so I you know turned up the sound all, I, could, I turned up the sound all the way and I, I couldn't see it or hear it and he said my, my wife and my son said what do you bother watching TV you can't hear it or see it anyway he starts to describe this malady that he has that uh, he didn't know what it was and you know we're, we're, when we see the translation we're going he has mercury poisoning that's the first science of it. You start to lose your hearing and your eyesight. He just doesn't know it. See, now that gets us to a very important part of this film, that it goes far beyond the slaughter of dolphins. There's also the proliferation of mercury and mercury poison and the distribution of dolphin meat into the Japanese food supply. Tell me a little bit about that and how it pertains to this particular part of your film. Well, you know, to me... the the cove is not just about a cove, uh, you know, in this remote town. It's not, you know, west versus east. It's not about they eat dolphins and we eat cows. It's not an animal rights issue. It, it, you know, it's, it's about a lot of things. It's a microcosm of what, what's, what we're doing to the oceans. And so the movie's constructed so that, you know, every time you go, you go out of the cove to get exposition, you know, learn a little bit more about the IWC, why aren't these animals protected, you start to realize that the you know the, the bad guys are are bigger and worse than you thought. The stakes get raised, and at the end of the day, what you realize is that, my God, they're not just killing dolphins and, and feeding up the school children. They're poisonous. Not any, not just a little bit, but anywhere from five to five thousand times more mercury than allowed by Japanese law. And you start to realize that there's bigger forces in, you know at play here that are keeping this information from uh, they're withholding this information from getting out to the Japanese people. So then the stakes become like we're not just trying to save dolphins here. We're trying to save people. We're trying to save kids. You know, ba- basically, dolphins are at the very top level of the food chain, like human beings. There's about six levels to the food chain, going from diatoms, the first, the, the smallest, you know, microscopic organisms floating in the, in the water. You can't even see them. Up to, to swordfish, so every at every level up, those six levels of the food chain, you go up an order of magnitude of, of toxins like mercury, cadmium, and lead. So you have a, a million times more mercury in a pound of swordfish than you would in a, in a pound of diatoms, which is pretty astonishing. You know, mercury is the most toxic, non-radioactive element in the world. You know, everything that we like to eat, everything that I used to like to eat, like you know, tuna, swordfish, shark, marlin. You know, sea bass, Spanish mackerel, anything that's long-lived and large in the in the ocean is generally too toxic for people to eat on a kind of a regular basis. Through the making of this movie, I was I was interviewing the doctors that study mercury poisoning down in Minamata, where there's a big outbreak of mercury poisoning, and I interviewed them in the morning, and you know I said, "Can I take you guys out to lunch?" And they said, "Sure." What do you like to eat? And I said, "Sushi. I, lo- I love sushi. And I know it's expensive there, so I treated them out and." Uh, we went to a restaurant, and my Japanese interpreter ordered these big platters of Japanese sushi. And I looked over at the researchers under the table. There were six doctors, researchers, and scientists with us, and none of them were eating the sushi. Not one of them. And I said, "What's with this? You know, Japanese people eat more fish than anybody on the planet. You know, they're, they're basically eating their weight in seafood—66 kilos per person per year. That's about 140 pounds of, of fish. Like me, they're eating their weight in fish every year." And I was really proud of the way I ate. I thought that was something we had in common with, you know, the Japanese people. And they said, 
Well, you should know that the six of us around this table were, were curious how, how fast mercury bioaccumulates in the human body. So we did this experiment, realizing that it would be unethical to do the experiment on anybody else but ourselves. They called it the super size me experiment, but Japanese style. They each ate 200 grams of tuna every day for a month. Now, 200 grams of tuna for people that, that don't, like the Americans, that don't think in terms of, uh, only think in terms of ounces. This is about seven ounces, less than half a can of tuna fish, what I would put on a couple crackers. And the, but the doctor that was getting the, the cuts of, of tuna for him and dishing it out every day was getting the cheapest cuts he could because they were paying for the experiment themselves. They didn't want to pay a whole lot. They were getting from a Benito, a very small, short-lived tuna. And they were horrified because at the end of two weeks, their levels had, on average, had doubled. One of the doctors, knowing where this graph was going, dropped out of the experiment. The other five decided to go on. But they decided, let's, let's spring for the, the good stuff. You know, it was the end of the Benito season. He says, put in a little bit more money, we'll get the, you know, you know, the healthy stuff, the, the sushi-grade tuna. And at the end of, you know, the, the four weeks, their levels had gone up an average of eight times. It was essentially, the, 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 the good stuff was more twice as toxic as the, the you know, the, the other stuff, the Benito. He said, and this doctor said to me, you should know that nobody at the hospital eats fish anymore. You know, especially large apex predators, you know. He said, do you eat a lot of fish? And I said, that's all I eat for animal protein. He said, you should get, you should get tested. And I, I did, and I had the highest levels my doctor had ever seen in Colorado. Um, my hair was about 10.5 parts per million, which translates to about 42 parts in the blood. I was horrified. You know, my, my son's a professional fisherman. I had him tested. He had higher levels than me. This movie might have saved my, if, you know, if not my life, my health. Mercury has a half-life in the human body of about 70 to 90 days. I stopped eating fish right there. Changing my eating habits was the hardest thing I've ever done one of the hardest, hardest things I've ever done in my adult life because, you know, you have to call into question everything that, it turned my world upside down. You know, all the healthy fish I thought I was eating was extremely unhealthy. Well, it sounds to me like you've made quite a few changes. And now, we started out this conversation when you said that you took a crash course in filmmaking, but you're, you're no stranger to film. You were a photographer, the youngest photographer ever to be hired by National Geographic, and you worked there for a number of years. You've made a huge transformation. How do you go from being a journalist to now being an activist yeah well this is about that filmmaker to an activist yeah um you know i, I i'm a searcher i like to, you know i think i actually think it's, it's all the same thing you know i, I look at uh, storytelling through you know photography and, and i've written books i've uh i've you know done a film now i've you know, it's, it's really just storytelling. And I happen to be a, you know, a, more of a visual storyteller. But it's the same thing. You want to, you know, you're, you're telling a story. And you tell it through words and pictures. And, you know, in the case of film, you're, you're telling it through moving pictures and words. And, you know, what allowed me to do this is I had a lot of really great help. I mean, you know, the director, John Ford, said that making a film is like painting a picture with an army. I had a really good army. Uh, talented writer, you know, um, Mark Monroe, great editor Jeff Richman, great producers Paul Dupre Pressman and uh, Fisher Stevens. You know, I, I, I surrounded by excellent help. You know, if there's anything I bring to the equation, is I'm, I'm I'm surrounding myself with people more talented than me at, at what they do. And you know, but the joke on the set was that you know when because we were basically non-filmmakers going in to do the COVID. The joke on the set, all of you, yeah. The joke on the set was we're all professionals, just not at this. <laughs> The Cove recently premiered in Japan, where protesters have decried it as Western propaganda. 
But advocates aim to raise awareness for the annual dolphin slaughter, which starts in September. More than 23,000 dolphins are killed there each year. To learn more, see this film. The Cove is now available on DVD. Find it on Netflix, or better still, buy a copy online at thecovemovie.com. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. Music this week by Chad Ferran. The Joy Trip Project is brought to you thanks to the generous support of our sponsor, Patagonia, makers of fine outdoor clothing. Find them online at patagonia.com. Thanks for listening. But you know, we want to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word by posting a link to it on your Facebook page or send us out as a tweet to your followers on Twitter. Post your comments to the Joy Trip Project blog or send us an email at info at joytripproject.com. Share your stories. Share your passion for outdoor recreation, environmental conservation, acts of charitable giving, and practices of sustainable living. And you just might inspire our next Joy Trip together. But most of all, don't forget to tell your friends. Until next time, take care. Confess what you've done to leave me on.